Well, can you imagine, some of you can, how many of you put puzzles together? You like doing puzzles? All right, a number of you. Uh, can you imagine what it would be like to put together a puzzle uh, with about 500 pieces, um, but you didn't have the picture of what the puzzle was supposed to be? Uh, maybe you kept the box and you kept the pieces in half of the box, but you didn't have the top of the box, and so the pieces have been in a, in a Ziploc bag or something, and so you dump them out all over the table and you begin to look at individual pieces, but you're not exactly sure how they're all going to come together and the, the picture that eventually is going to emerge as you put all the pieces uh, together. Uh, in short, uh, what we're trying to do over the next several months as we go through this series is we're trying to do just that. Scripture, oftentimes, as you come here on a Sunday morning, as you listen to a podcast or something else, uh, you're getting little pieces uh, to the puzzle. And for some of us, depending on what your uh, growing up experience uh, was like as far as church goes, you feel like sometimes I got this little piece and I get this piece, but I don't understand how it all fits together uh, in the whole of Scripture. And we're going to try to make sense of the big picture uh, by studying many of the individual pieces to the puzzle over the next several months. Most of you know there are 66 books in the Bible, 1089 chapters, about 775,000 words that are in Scripture. And we want you to see how all of that fits together uh, to tell God's story. And what is God's story? God's story is a story of him relentlessly pursuing a people that he created, you and I, and that he desperately wants to have a relationship with. In fact, the truth of the story is this, that we were created to be in relationship with our creator, and if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, you're not in a relationship with God, uh, something is missing. There's a vacuum uh, that's in your life. And this is the grand story of Scripture, how God relentlessly pursues us to come back into that relationship that he created us to have with him. Uh, last week, Jerry uh, talked with us about Noah and God's call on his life, which was uh, to build a big boat that would eventually save a remnant of human beings uh, for a new start. Here's the unfortunate thing about the whole story of Noah and that ark, is that when his family got off of that ark, they also got, out, got off with what? With a sin nature that they were born with. And as a result of that sin nature, those uh, family members of Noah, as they began to populate uh, the earth, uh, the same things happen. They behave similarly to generations uh, before them uh, that had been destroyed uh, in the flood. Now, Genesis 11, and you can turn there if you want, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do this morning. I hope you bring your copy of Scripture with you, or uh, you have maybe version on your iPhone or iPad. Uh, but if you look at chapter 11, you can look at chapter 11 and just know this in short. We're not going to spend our time there today. But chapter 11 represents about a thousand years of history that the Bible really does not record a lot about, doesn't give us a lot of information. We read in chapter 11 about the, uh, the Tower of Babel. And just as people have always wanted to be more important than they actually are, that was true of those people. They decided that they would build a tower, that they would, that they would reach towards uh, God, towards the heaven. That chapter also tells us that at that time, they all spoke one language. 
Now, that'd be really cool as I've been thinking about it this week. I wish that was still true, uh, that we all spoke one language. As I uh, go to Kenya this week, we'll be uh, with a group of pastors starting towards the end of the week, and we're going to be with them for a couple of days. And I'll only get to speak about as half as long as I could speak if we had one language. Why? Because every word that I say has to be translated uh, to them in Swahili or some other dialect in order that they might be able to understand what I'm saying. That all began in Genesis chapter 11 when God looked down and said, these people are arrogant. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to confuse them. I'm going to confuse their tongues. And so they began to speak different languages. And um, I, I put down here in my notes as I was studying this week, and people have been babbling ever since. And that is the truth, right? That's what we've been doing, and they've been doing it in different languages. And this chapter concludes with an introduction uh, to a man named Terah. Terah is a very important man in the grand narrative of Scripture. Why is that? Because Terah had three sons, one of whom was a man that we know as Abram. Now, Abraham, Abram married a woman named Sarai, and God changed their names at a later time. And this morning, we're going to typically use their names that we know them as, and that is... Abraham and Sarah. God changed it from Abram and Sarai. And so turn with me over to uh, Genesis chapter 12. And that's where we're going to look at today uh, the life of Abraham, who's a very significant man in the Bible. Uh, Abraham's story takes about 13 chapters here in the book of Genesis. Uh, But did you realize, and I don't think I even realized that till this week, that Abraham is mentioned at least 75 times in the New Testament. Abraham is very much a main character in God's story of redemption that we see woven throughout the Old and New Testament. And so follow along with me there in Genesis chapter 12. We'll look at verse 1. Verse 1 says that God said to Abraham, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'm going to show you. Verse 2 tells us what God's going to do. God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Turn over with me to chapter 13 and verse 14. God tells Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I'm going to give you into your offspring forever. I'm going to make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Now, now stop there for just a moment. If you're a young man that's here today, and maybe you've recently been married, how would you feel if God came down to you and he said, I'm going to give you as many children as there is dust on the earth? Can you even fathom that? Those of us that have two or three or four kids, Can you imagine having kids that numbered the dust of the earth? This is what God is telling to this man. Verse 17, he says, Arise, walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I'm going to give it to you. Walk as far to the left as you can, as far to the right as you can. Walk as far north as you can. Walk as far south as you can. I'm going to give that all to you. That's what God says he's going to do. And then look at chapter 15 and verse 5, if that's not enough. God's talking with Abraham and he says, uh, go outside. And he said, look towards the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. Now, obviously, Abraham wasn't able to number all of them. God said to him, so shall your offspring be. You're going to have a ton of kids. What promises? 
Can you imagine waking up in the wee hours tomorrow morning as you go to bed tonight and God begins to speak to you and God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Here's what I'm going to do with you. All the people that are on the earth, I'm going to bless them through you. I'm going to build a nation out of you. That'd be fearful. That'd be a scary thing to experience. But as shocking as it is to read those promises that God is making to Abraham, it is even more shocking to realize who he is making these promises to. I want to tell you just two things as we get started about Abraham. Some of you know this, others of you don't. In Joshua chapter 24, we read that Abraham's father, Terah, was an idol worshiper. Not only was he an idol worshiper, but he actually made idols for other people. This seemed like kind of an unlikely person for God to choose to build a nation upon. I'm going to make you the foundation. You that comes from a family of idol worshipers who creates idols for other people. Yeah, it's you that I'm going to choose. So God's going to build this nation from which will ultimately come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And this is how he's going to get it all started. He's going to use an elderly couple who've never had a child to populate the nation. Now, can you imagine this conversation that God might have with his angels in heaven? He tells them, here is my great plan of redemption. I'm going to create this nation, this people, and, and here's what I'm going to do. Look down there on the earth. You, you see that guy right there? Yeah, yeah, that one. That one, that one with the, with the gray hair, the receding hairline, the big gray beard. Yeah, yeah, that guy with the woman, with the walker. Yeah, that one, that one right there. Yeah, that's who I choose to use. And the angels go, but God, you know, they're, they're old. <laughs> yeah, I know they're old. God, did you know this? Did you know that Sarah is barren, that she's never had any children? And, and really, unless you do something miraculous, she's never going to have children? Yeah, I know that. That's who I choose. Now, would you do that? Would, would that be the one that you would choose? I don't know if you've ever been walking around your neighborhood, if you live in Cary, and most of you do live in this surrounding area. But I look at times when I'm out walking or, or exercising or even just driving in my car and you see those people, right? And typically they're like late 20-somethings, maybe early 30s, and, uh, and they're in every neighborhood in this area, right? And they got, they're decked out in the exercise clothes. You know who I'm talking about. You've seen this lady in your neighborhood, right? And, and she is, man, she's got the Under Armour on, the top, the bottom. She's got really cool shoes on. Her husband, man, he, he has the fitted Under Armour on, you know. Guys like me, we're, we're the loose-fitting Under Armour. No, this guy, this guy, he's so much of a stud. He's got, it just, it clings to his body. He's got this contraption on his wrist that's, you know, monitoring everything that he's doing. And we look at that couple and we go, man, that is the life. I bet they're rich too. I bet they have really good looking kids. He has a great job. They go on nice vacations. I mean, man, they're the picture of health. You know that couple, right? You've seen them. They're in your neighborhood. They live in Cary Park. They're all around. They live in Cameron Pond. They live in Wycroft. They live all over the place, right? Now, if I'm God and I'm going to build a nation and I'm going to have the Messiah come through that line, that's who I choose, right? That's who I choose. There's some of you, you are like that. You are that person. We don't like you, right? You're, you're that person, right? There's people, we're looking around right now going, yeah, it's that couple over there. I know who he's talking about. That's who I would choose. But, but my friends, in the beginning of what we'll see God do, 
many times in the narrative of Scripture. God does just the opposite of what we think he's going to do. He takes the least likely people to accomplish his purpose and to tell his story. And I think that's awesome, don't you? That God would take the least likely. Why? Because I ain't one of those people. And most of you, as I look out at you and I got a pretty good perspective here, you ain't either. All right? You're nice. You're really nice. And you don't look that bad. But I'm telling you, you're not that person. Most of us are just pretty ordinary and average. That's why there is an ordinary and an average. Because most of us are like that. And it's so awesome to think that when we look at, at what Jerry and I will be talking about over the next several months, and we look at the grand narrative of Scripture, that it's a God who is unbelievably powerful and wise, and he says, I'm going to turn the whole thing upside down, and I'm going to use people that nobody else would use. Think about this. Abraham is old, obviously. Isaac was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was a slave. Moses stuttered. Gideon was fearful, Samson was proud, Rahab was immoral, David had an affair, Elijah was suicidal, Jeremiah was depressed, Jonah was disobedient, Naomi was a widow, Mary was a poor teenage girl, John the Baptist, at the very least, if you know anything about John the Baptist, he was eccentric. (laughs) Peter was impulsive, to say the least. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Thomas had his doubts, that's why we call him doubting Thomas. Paul killed people, and we know through his writings that he was in poor health. Timothy was timid, and the list goes on and on and on of the people that God would use to tell his story. They're not the ones that you or I would choose, but it's who God chooses to be the main cast in his story. And you ask yourself the question, well, why does God do that if you and I would do something different? It's because God does what he does for his glory. You need to understand that as we are at the beginning of, of going through this grand narrative of Scripture that God does what he does for his glory. So important for you to understand that. God is not concerned about your glory. He's not. I know that's not popular on the podcast. If you go onto iTunes this afternoon, you look at the most popular podcast, you're not going to find that message. God's not concerned about your glory. Because the popular message in our culture is that it's just the opposite. That God is most consumed with your comfort, with your pleasure, and ultimately with our glory. And that's not the God that we're reading about in this story. God is jealous for his glory. And the best way to make sure that he gets the glory is for him to choose the weak and the least likely people so that he can show himself strong through their obvious weaknesses. And that's what God does. And it's this kind of a person that God chooses to build a nation. And so God tells Abraham to leave everything that's familiar to him. He tells him to leave his hometown, which is Haran, which is a border town on what we would see if we looked at the map now. It would be modern-day Turkey and Syria. We're fairly familiar with that part of the world right now because of all the turmoil over there. Leave that area, leave that town, leave his extended family, and go to a place. (laughs) I think that's interesting. Just go to a place. It'd be as if I came up to you after the service and I said, hey, just leave. Just go. And you said, well, where should I go? I don't care. Just go. Just go to a place. In fact, just start driving on Interstate 40. I'll call you and I'll tell you where to go along the way. How many of you would do it? 
Not many of you would do it, right? You'd say, I want to know what is the final destination? Where is it that you want me to go? God just says to go, to leave everything, just leave and just trust me. And oh, by the way, remember, going to make of you a great nation. It's going to be a great nation. All the people of the earth are going to be blessed through you, but you got to go. And so God is asking this elderly couple to change everything. Now, I'm not going to define for you this morning what elderly is. I learned very on in ministry uh, that you uh, never ask a woman her age, never ask her if she's pregnant, never ask her any of those things. I'm not going to define for you what elderly is, but you kind of get in your mind what elderly is. And you know when we get to be a certain age, we're all approaching that age, all of us, even you guys, we're all approaching that age. When you get to be a certain age, you don't want any change. And that's exactly what God is asking this elderly couple to do. He's asking them to change everything. Think about all the excuses they could have made. God, do you recognize I'm 75 stinking years old? And I think he would have said stinking years old. I mean, I'm an old man. There's younger men over here. Choose them. He could have made a lot of excuses and all the reasons that he could have given not to go. And yet look at what we read in chapter 12, verse 4. I love this verse. <laughs> Underline it. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. He just went. They don't have any idea where they're going, and they're old, but they just go. The writer of Hebrews says of them in chapter 11 of Hebrews, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of the promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. How many of you at your age, okay, and again, I'm not going to define whether you're old or not, but if you think you're old, how many of you would go, I'll leave, I'll go live in a tent. I know where some of you live. You would not go live in a tent. Abraham leaves. He goes and lives in a tent. Because of this promise, verse 10 said, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And that is what faith is. Faith is believing that God will do what he says he will do. And it is demonstrated by actually doing something. Real faith always has a component of action. For many of us, the problem with our faith is our faith is just just the belief part. We say we believe, but it never involves action. Let me tell you this. Most of the time when God asks us to do something, he doesn't give us all of the details. Most of the time he just simply says, go, move, do something. Now, I don't know if you're one of those people, most of us are, who we don't want to go unless we have a plan, unless we know where we're going and we know all the steps that we're going to take to get to that place, right? We don't like the idea of anybody telling us just to go, and yet that's what biblical faith does. Biblical faith always just takes a step because God rarely gives us, he rarely gives us all of the information that we need to know. As we said several weeks ago in our, in our study, in our series, My Story, you will never, ever, ever know what it means to live with real biblical faith if you're always having to have all the path lined up for you before you take a step. And that is why most of us are average, most of us are normal, most of us never accomplish anything great in our lives because we're not willing to step out in faith just believing that God is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he will do. And so I tell people on a regular basis, it's much easier for God to steer a moving car than it is a parked car, right? And so for some of you, what you just need to do is you just simply need to move. You just simply need to get going. You use the phrase all the time, well, I, I just need to pray about it, okay? 
Now, I'm not against praying. I know that I've said this in several sermons and people at some point you're going to say, he doesn't even think we ought to pray. I do think you ought to pray, right? I think I ought to pray. But I think sometimes God sits up in heaven and he says, will you quit asking me that question? Just go. Do you ever say to your kids, if you ask me that question one more time, right? You do. And I think sometimes our heavenly father sits up in heaven and he goes, if you ask me that question one more time, what I want you to do is I simply want you to move. I want you to go. I want you to do something. You say, but God, where am I going to end up? I'm not going to tell you. I just want you to move. That's what faith is all about. And that's what Abraham did. Paul wrote, in fact, in Romans chapter 4, verse 18. I love this passage. Paul's writing about Abraham and he says, In hope he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. He is believing against hope, right? He's an old man. His wife is barren. They've had no kids. He had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. I love it, what Paul says here. If you've never looked at this passage of scripture, write it down, study it later. Romans 4.19, it says, he, he did not consider his own body, which was as good as dead. <laughs> How about that? How about if you went into the doctor for a physical this week and he looked at you and go, I'm just telling you, you're about as good as dead, right? That's what Paul is writing about Abraham. We're going, well, Paul, you're pretty important, but Abraham, like, this dude's pretty important too in the grand narrative of Scripture. And Abraham, or Paul's writing about him, his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in the faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You see, he didn't just say, I believe, I give mental assent to, I think you are that person, I believe that. He actually moved, it always involved action. And I want to tell you this, so much of life is just that. So much of our life and our story will come down to this. Do we believe that God is capable and that he'll do what he says he will do? That kind of faith is always evidenced by how we behave. Look at your own faith. Is it just something that you simply talk about or does it affect the actions of your daily life? That's what biblical faith does. In fact, so how do you respond when you get that job that you're, you get that notice that your job is ending, that you are being eliminated, that your services are being made available to industry as a whole? <laughs> how do you respond at that moment? Do you believe that God is who he says he is, that God will do what he says he will do, that he will take care of you, that he will provide for you? What happens when you don't get that job that you thought was just perfect for you? That job that you thought, man, if I get that, this, this would be the ultimate. And then for whatever reason, God chooses not to give you that job. Do you believe? What happens when you apply to that school? Some of you are in that, in that mode of applying to a college or to a graduate school and you don't get that opportunity that you wanted. What happens when you go into the doctor's office and you think it's just a routine visit, a routine physical or whatever, and the doctor comes in and he shuts the door and he says, I've got some news for you. You see, it's at those situations, it's at those moments in life that we find out whether we really believe that God knows what is best for us and what best will accomplish things that will glorify him through our life or they're just simply words that we say we believe but there's no action. It's important to understand that biblical faith 
is believing that God will do what he says he will do. Now here's the rub. For most of us, we think that biblical faith is believing that God will do what I want him to do, right? And so we pray. And how do we pray? God, I just, I pray that you would do this for me and you would do this for my family. That's why Jesus said, how should we pray? We pray according to whose will? Our will? No, we pray according to his will. That's why when we're praying that God might heal a family member or a friend of cancer, we pray according to God's will because we don't know what ultimately will bring him the most glory through our lives or through another person's situation. And so biblical faith is not believing that God will do what I want him to do. Biblical faith is believing that God will do what he says he will do. And so Abraham, like us, and I'm glad there's a Genesis chapter 15. If you have your Bible, flip over to chapter 15. I'm glad God includes Genesis chapter 15 because if he didn't, we would look and we would say, uh, wow, um, Abraham, what a man of faith that he would just get up the next morning and he would just leave with his his, uh, elderly wife and they would leave to go start a nation and to do something and to go someplace that they didn't know where they were going. But I'm really comforted that when we get to Genesis chapter 15, we find out that Abraham, like us, had doubts. And Abraham begins to wonder if God's mistaken. Does God really understand that he and Sarah have no kids? How can he be the foundation of a nation if I have no kids? And in verse 15, verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, which tells us that he must have been fearful. I'm your shield, I'm your reward, and your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is another family member. And Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And I'm sure Abraham's going, I don't have a son. (laughs) Like, are you crazy? You keep telling me this. You keep promising me this. But God, I don't really know. Will you do what you say that you're going to do? We still don't have any kids. And she ain't getting any younger. Look at verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Right here he's saying, God, would you give me some sign, some way to know? Would you promise me that you're going to do what you say you're going to do? Because we've been on the road a long time. And living in these tents, it's not really that comfortable. And we don't even have any idea where we're actually going. Would you please give me some kind of a sign? Now look in verse 9. God does exactly what you would do or I would do. He said to him, bring me a heifer. That's what I'd do, right? You want a sign? Bring me a heifer. Some of you are going, what the heck is a heifer? All right, look it up. Google it. You got your phones out anyway. I know that's what you're doing. Stop texting. Stop tweeting. Look that up. (laughs) What is a heifer, right? You might not like what you get there. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. That's good. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now, Abraham, unlike you and I, we look at this and we go, that sounds kind of creepy. Abraham looked at it and went, I know exactly what God is talking about here. Why? Because in his culture, this was a common practice when two priorities were uh, solemnizing an agreement, a promise, a covenant. They would kill a donkey. They would cut the donkey in two. 
I know, it's bad, right before lunch. They would cut the donkey in two, lay half of the donkey over here, half of the donkey over there, and they would walk through the halves of those animals. And as they walked through, they would repeat the terms of the covenant. Something like this. Let's pretend that this is a heifer, right? About three years old, right? And this is what Abraham would have done. Abraham would have taken the heifer and he would have sliced the heifer right in two and he would have taken each side of the heifer and he would have laid them down just like this, half over here and half over there. And the parties would walk through the split animals and as they walked through the split animals, they would repeat the terms of the covenant and as they repeated the terms of the covenant, they knew that in a very dramatized, a very vivid way, there was a self-imposed curse that should either of the parties that were in the covenant or in the agreement, should either party violate the terms of that agreement. It was as if they were saying, if I break my word, may I become like the severed animal. Now think about that. Have you ever had an agreement with somebody and they broke it? I said to my daughter on the way to church this morning, from now on, when I make agreements with people, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> Preferably with watermelons, not heifers, but we'll do it with watermelons. Because what they're saying is, hey, if I break my word, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, you business guys out there, how, how good would that be, right? May I become like that? May you split me in two? That's pretty serious stuff, right? When you entered into that covenant, you really meant what you were saying. The nearest scriptural parallel that we have of this would be later on in Jeremiah, where some people actually broke uh, the covenant. And we read about it in, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 34. But here in Genesis 15, Abraham was directed to use five distinctive animals, all of which we will see in uh, weeks to come. They'd be standard sacrifices when the Mosaic covenant was instituted. And though the animals were slaughtered and cut in half, the animals were never sacrificed. They were never consumed. They were never burned up. There was no altar. There was no fire. There was no burning. It was strictly symbolic, and it was a way to represent God's covenant with the people in much the same way as the animals represent them before God in the future sacrificial system. And so Abraham killed them, and uh, he laid the animals uh, out in, in between the halves, and apparently the, dug, the, the dove and the young pigeon were not halved. They were small animals and they were placed on either side. And then uh, look in verse 12. Abraham falls asleep. I don't know, by the way, how he could split all these animals in two and lay them out and then fall asleep. I mean, I'd like to be scared to fall asleep. Like their brothers and sisters are going to come get me and slice me in two. But he falls asleep. It says in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain, know for certain, your offspring are going to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Which is what happens, right? Verse 14, But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. It's what happened. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. And you shall be buried in a good old age. If you've been around Northwest, we've talked about this passage. When Abraham dies, and it says that he died at the ripe old age, satisfied with life. 
That prophecy is going to come true. Verse 16, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now you go, ooh, you know, the day after Halloween. That sounds really spooky and it's really, really cool. On the same day that the Lord makes the covenant with Abraham, God, represented by this smoking pot and this burning torch, he passes through the animal parts himself. While Abraham does not pass through, Abraham is passively sitting by just watching all of this happen as God ratifies the agreement. And you say, well, I thought it should be two parties making this agreement and making this promise. There there was a reason for this. The certainty of the covenant God made with Abraham is based on who God is. Not on who Abraham is or what Abraham uh, would do. The covenant could not fail because God cannot fail. And ultimately, we'll see in the, in the great narrative of Scripture that the new agreement that God will offer us by allowing Jesus to shed his innocent blood on the cross cannot fail either. And why is that? Because it isn't about us. It's not about anything of, of who we are and how good we are and what we do. It's all about God. And this is foreshadowing that. That we will be saved by faith through grace alone, not having anything to do with ourselves. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ as our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's going to come later on in the story. And so today, about 4,000 years have passed since this event took place in the life of Abraham. And you ought to be asking the question, so what does it mean to us? The only way, you know, for God to display uh, his commitment to Abraham more vividly would have been for that uh, smoking pot or that flaming torch to become reality. Uh, for, for the ever-living God to take on human nature and taste death in the place of the people that he was making the covenant with, with us. And here's the really cool thing. That is precisely, as we move on in the story, isn't that precisely what God will do? He will display it even more vividly when his son comes to be born of a virgin, Mary, and he lives for 33 years here on this earth and then suffers and bleeds and dies on a cross for your sin and for my sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By, God, by God's word, according to Galatians 3.29, if you're in Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. You're heirs according to that promise. And there's an ultimate land that's waiting us, a heaven that is waiting us, which is where Abraham is and all those who place their trust in God, in Christ alone. And we're going to see him someday. I'm convinced as we, as we land the plane today, I'm convinced that how we view God is really everything. Some Christ followers, and there are some of us here this morning, and we're like this, um, we believe in the God that we read about in the Bible. 
the God of Abraham. And we would look at God and we would say that God is really big, that God is really powerful, that God is really awesome. Some of us this morning, that's the kind of God that we believe in. And then there's others of us and we have bought into our culture's view of God. And it's really unfortunate. You know, when you, when you watch a, a sitcom on a weeknight and they interject into it religion, or God, who is God? God is always the passive little grandfather. It's always the figure that he is, right? With a long flowing beard, it's like he's a religious Santa Claus. And he doesn't really care what you do or, or, or that you violate his holiness. He doesn't really care how you invest your life. He doesn't care that you're immoral. He just, he just loves you. telling you, that's not the God that we see in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, we see a holy, omnipotent God. A God, yes, that is relentlessly pursuing us to come back in relationship with him because he knows that's what we were created for. We were created to be in relationship with him. But God is not some little pansy being that is up in the sky that just caters to your every whim and only wants you to be happy. And even if you're immoral and you don't live according to biblical principle, he just looks at you and mm, I just love you anyway. That's not who God is. For some of us, that's who our God is. And if that is your God, then you'll never, ever, ever fully live the life that God intends for you to live. I believe that what we think about God is everything because if you have a big God, several things happen. You have a God through his son who has redeemed you to be his people. It's a pretty cool thing. You don't have to worry about your future. You don't have to worry if you go into the doctor tomorrow and he says, hey, you have cancer. Some of you've heard that recently. You have months to live. If you are in Christ, if God is who he says he is, and he's done what he said he's done with death and sin, you don't have anything to worry about. If God is big, then you have a God who will lead you through the difficulties of this life. There isn't anything that's going to happen this week, next, next month, next year. Parents, nothing that's going to happen to your kids that isn't going to fall through the sovereign, omnipotent hand of God. If your God is big. If your God is big, you have a God who will do miracles in your life. He delights in doing things that seem impossible. Why? Because when they're impossible, he gets the glory. You have a God who's going to give you direction in your life. You have a God who hears you when you pray. You say, well, he hears me, but he, but he doesn't do what I've told him to do. That's because you're praying according to your will. You're not praying according to God's will, but he does hear you. And everything that he does in your life, every direction that he gives in your life, he does so for your good, but ultimately for his glory. Lastly, if you have a big God, you have a God who has purpose for your life and will accomplish that purpose for his glory. The question is, who's your God? Is this your God? The smoking pot, the flaming torch, the God of the universe who is who he says he is and does what he says he will do? Is that your God? 
Or is your God the God of your imagination that you've made up, that you've seen on a TV screen, a movie screen? A God that I pray doesn't exist because that's not the God that I want. I pray you'll be convinced of the God of Abraham. The God that said, I love you. I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. I'm going to relentlessly pursue you so that we come back into relationship with one another. That's my God. That's my God. That's the God that I want you to know. Not the figment of your imagination or what culture, culture tells you God might be. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. Thanks for your love for us and for how you demonstrated that for us. God, thanks for using messed up, broken, insignificant, unlikely people to tell your story. God, thank you for how you demonstrated yourself in such a vivid way, your commitment to Abraham and building this nation from whom would come the Messiah of the world. God, thank you for how you made it so very vividly clear to Abraham and not only Abraham, but to us as well. We can't help but say that, that God, you must, you must love us in an incredible way. And I pray for those that are here this morning that have never really experienced a relationship with a God, the real, true God, the God of Abraham. I pray that we'll be convinced of who you are and that being convinced of who you are, we will move in faith to be the people that you want us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.